Today, climate change is affecting all of us around the globe. It intersects not only with the environment, but also with politics, national security, and human rights. The climate crisis touches every aspect of our lives. But with Australia trailing behind the rest of the globe, endorsing a gas-led recovery, we analyse if there is any hope for climate policy in Australia. We will also be focusing on the power of the people to push climate policy in different parts of the world and whether or not we can mobilise enough people to push for substantive climate policy. Today we are joined by Dr Simon Bradshaw from the Climate Council to help us delve into these issues. From Amnesty Australia, I am Finn Spalding. And I am Anita Nair, and this is Anytime Amnesty. like to start by acknowledging country um, and I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which we meet today so for me that's the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations and I'd like to pay my respect to elders past present and emerging and extend that respect to the elders and custodians of the land upon which all of us meet here today. So when we were reading through the recent report that you published one of the things that you mentioned was that Australians were five times more likely to be displaced mm. due to climate change fueled disasters than someone living in Europe and someone in the Pacific might be 100 times more likely. Given this, what is Australia's current climate policy to address the fact that we are so at risk? Well, the first thing we realise when we see those sorts of statistics is that although none of us are immune to the impacts of climate change, clearly those impacts are not being felt evenly. And in fact, it's typically those communities and countries that have contributed the very least of the problem that are now bearing the brunt, whether it's through that risk of displacement or the impacts on their food and water security and so on. If we're to look at the scale and pace of action that needs to be taken to ensure we do have a future in which everyone's rights are protected and everyone is able to not just survive but thrive, um, that means far greater action, especially from wealthy developed countries like Australia. At the moment, uh, we've got a very weak target for 2030 that perhaps we're going to meet. Um, but even so, that's still going to leave us as just about the most polluting country on earth at the end of the decade. That's well short of the sort of scale and pace of action that we need to be taken and can be taken, given the natural advantages we have in Australia. In simple terms, we should be aiming to cut our emissions by at least half over this decade, by 2030 and to be achieving net zero emissions by 2040 at latest. And if we're to be serious about this and think through what's actually a fair share for Australia, given our historical contribution to climate change, given the impacts that we're fueling, you can certainly argue we should be achieving net zero emissions much earlier than that by the end of this decade. And that is possible. I think we have to be clear there's no big technical or economic challenges in the way of that. It's just a case of having the leadership and the determination to get there. And I guess to understand the ramifications, what would be like our future in 2050 if we don't alter the current trajectory that we're on? Look, it's going to depend where on the earth we live. And one of the 
the brute realities of climate change is that it's likely and in fact already is exacerbating a lot of the inequalities we see both between countries, within countries, between genders, um, between groups of different ages. The trajectory we're on at the moment is a very, very difficult future for everybody, wherever we are. But for the world's most vulnerable communities, it's a barely survivable future when we look at the impacts on food production, on uh, people being forced from their land and homes. And so we really do need to radically step up both the scale and pace at which we're going to uh, reduce our own emissions, but also the level of support that we provide to communities who are really on the front lines of these impacts, both in Australia and overseas, to ensure that they are able to you know, survive and prosper in what is now going to be a, a, a more volatile future. Jumping on that concept of climate tri- crisis is this exacerbator. What does it look like for Australia and climate refugees in particular? Australia is somewhat unique among wealthy developed countries in that we sit in the middle of this region where the, uh, you know, the impacts of climate change are are particularly severe and I'm sure everyone has some understanding of the Pacific and the particular vulnerabilities there both to low-lying coastal communities or entire nations when we're talking about the atoll nations. We've also got risks of increasingly severe uh, cyclones and shifts in rainfall patterns and so forth. It's worth looking at this you know through that you know human rights perspective that Amnesty brings so strongly because we sometimes just talk about x number of people at risk of displacement and those stats can be quite horrifying, but they really don't, I think, capture the, the human cost and sort of profound nature of what we're talking about. And you can say exactly the same when we're looking at the predicament of people in the Torres Strait Islands. You know, those communities at greatest risk of displacement are very often uh, First Nations, or these people have continually inhabited an area for a huge amount of time and are very intimately wedded to their land and seas, not only for their sustenance, but, uh, you know, culturally and ancestrally. And I think that prospect of being forced from one's home is you know, one of the most uh, <laughs> grave consequences of climate change. And it's very real, and we see it happening already to some extent in parts of the Pacific, and we see projections of that becoming much more serious. So our first responsibility there, I think, besides you know, just recognising the reality of what that means for communities, is doing everything we can to prevent people being forcibly displaced. And that's a combination of things. It's doing far more to cut our own contribution to climate change. It's doing more to enable communities to um, build enough resilience and uh, to adapt to new challenges so they can stay where they are. When I was doing research on this with Oxfam a few years ago, that's what we'd always be told, that understandably people don't want to leave their home. And number one priority is to be able to remain where they are. And so we have to support that right in those various ways. But the difficult reality is that there are growing numbers of communities for whom being displaced in the future is, is, a, is a serious prospect. Um, and in those cases, we have to make sure that we're helping providing choices and avenues so that people could move with dignity and on their own terms. Interestingly, in many parts of the world, certainly here in the Pacific, there's a bit of unease about the term climate refugees because of you know, that almost suggests that we leave things until people are displaced in a refugee-like situation and then have to you know, find refuge and go through the refugee processes. And at the moment, very difficult to be recognised as a climate refugee for reasons that, that we can go into. But more importantly, 
I think the reason there's a bit of unease with that term is that it's much smarter to plan ahead to avoid people in being in situations of sudden and forced displacement, you know, doing everything we can to enable people to adapt over time and ensure they have that right to remain where they are as long as possible if that's their choice, and then to ensure a sort of managed process of movement on people's own terms if that in the end becomes the only op option. And there was a uh, concept called migration with dignity that was coined by the former president of Kiribati to really try and capture this notion that we have to think about people's dignity, their choices, their long-term prospects, and how people have to move, that there are options for them to do so. I think recognizing that reality of forced displacement, approaching it with our sort of responsibilities and capabilities as Australia in mind, and how we can best support communities in the region is a very important question to be asking. There's a common view of the climate crisis as being leading to the destruction of the environment. And I guess with that, in your report, you mentioned that there's been three consecutive bleaching events of the Great Barrier Reef in 2016, 2017, and 2020. Just for those out there who might not know what bleaching of coral reefs mean, could you explain the process of bleaching? What is it and what damage does it do to the reef? It's a good question and it's a good thing to focus on because I think it's one of the most immediate, obvious, real-time impacts of climate change we see in Australia. What we've seen happen on the Great Barrier Reef was, I think in 20, when was it, 2017, 2016, this happened twice in, the, in two successive years, and then it happened again last year. Not everyone noticed because we were all preoccupied with coronavirus, but this process of bleaching was almost unknown prior to the 1990s, and now we're seeing it happen very regularly. And it's when water temperatures become too high, and so that's a very direct link to climate change. When you have these events happen in succession, is bleaching of the coral, then it's very difficult for especially the, the older hard corals to recover. And what tragically we've seen is over a remarkably short amount of time, uh, almost half of the Great Barrier Reef perish entirely because of these successive bleaching events. The reef itself is something like 8,000 years old in its current form. So to see that degree of mortality happen so quickly and you know what's really only the blink of an eye, a fraction of a human lifespan is, is very concerning. We often quantify this for Australians in terms of um, lost tourist revenue and um, the number of jobs that depend on the reef. And that's absolutely true. And that's a, a very well-founded concern. I, I tend to feel, looking at this from a more global perspective, though, that that doesn't really capture the what's at stake when we're looking at uh, death of a lot of the world's coral reefs, not just Australia's, if we carry on this uh, current path. because we look again to the Pacific, I mean, there are entire nations that are so dependent on healthy reefs for their food, for the protection of their coasts, so you know, both their physical and economic security. But then um, reefs are such a sort of hotbed of biodiversity that when they start to change dramatically, that has knock-on effects for the whole ocean ecosystem and terrestrial ecosystems as well. Um, so that's one reason why we tend to talk about the Great Barrier Reef a lot. Not only is it a huge an icon for Australia and Queenslanders in particular, but the changes we see there are, are pretty, are a very clarion call to um, do more about climate change. And I think, as you were alluding to, they're very serious human consequences of not doing so, as well as those environmental consequences. As you mentioned, as a government or as Australians who are very caught up in the pandemic, or when we talk about the Great Barrier Reef, it is often about tourism, or even when we're talking about Stop Adani, it's about 
the work or jobs lost in non-renewables. Do you think that the conversation we're having, particularly in Australia, does adequately address the multitude of elements that tie into climate change? I think the short answer is no. I think it's okay, though, to talk to the particular concerns and, and values that specific communities have. And it's understandable that communities that have traditionally uh, you know, relied on fossil fuel industries and are now looking at a transition, you know, look at things through that jobs lens. But what's really important, and perhaps the thing we tend to miss out on most, is, is the flip side of the equation. So the opportunities of stronger action on climate change, whether through renewable energy or ecosystem restoration or you know, new low-carbon manufacturing, and there's big markets opening up around the world. There's a whole raft of things we can do here. And there's enormous opportunities there in Australia and particularly Queensland, and even more particularly some of those same regions that are going to be moving away from fossil fuels as their industrial base. There's massive natural advantages that we have. We're the sunniest and windiest continent on Earth. We've got a lot of expertise here. We've got a lot of ingenuity, a lot of determination to, to solve this problem. And especially right now where we've had this big disruption of COVID-19 and so the need for big public investment in new infrastructure and uh, new efforts to revitalize industries and kickstart new industries, that's really the moment to be getting a lot of this stuff happening. If we were really focused now on laying the foundations for the clean industries of the future, we could be making great strides in tackling climate change in bringing new prosperity and jobs to regions, including in Queensland, and in, you know, in setting ourselves up to really prosper as the world as a whole moves beyond fossil fuels. So I think that's really what's missing, both in the Australian conversation, but you can say almost those same arguments wherever you are in the world. And I think we already mentioned about how climate change sadly really exacerbates existing inequalities and entrenches disadvantages. It's a very convenient truth in that some of the best things we can do to respond to climate change have great benefits in terms of promoting human rights and reducing inequality and supporting you know, dignified work and so on, whether that's you know, local renewable energy schemes, that means local communities have a new source of income and their own productive asset that they own, whether it's supporting small-scale farmers, which means better income uh, there, but they're also really the backbone of secure, climate-resilient food systems, uh, ensuring that we're supporting you know, leadership of women and young people who play such a crucial part in solutions. And maybe most importantly of all, and particularly from an Australian perspective, is recognising and valuing and supporting the role of First Nations peoples in dealing with climate change. Because quite simply, the best way to protect country, protect our natural assets, is to ensure greater Indigenous control of lands and that we're recognising and valuing the millennia of Indigenous and traditional knowledge that's, that, that's here in Australia. That's important for protecting our climate. That's important in terms of First Nations rights. And so we can deal with a lot of these problems at the same time. A piece of or a potential solution which came up, particularly in the US, is the Green New Deal which tried to combine dignity of work along with transition available and the opportunity available in the renewable sector. Would Australia benefit in trying to mimic that or is there any way to improve upon that within the Australian context? I, I think we'd all be, <laughs> we'd be all be dancing right now if we saw some of that same rhetoric that um, has come out of the Biden-Harris administration, you know, come out of our own government at the moment. 
I mean, we tend to focus on a lot of the, the, the negatives and the harrowing impacts of climate change, but there is a lot to be hopeful about at the moment. And I think the moves from the, the US are, uh, are the latest of these. But in fact, the last few months, we've seen a string of quite seismic developments. And I know sometimes when we're sort of grasping at those seeds for optimism, it's easier, easy to overstate these. And as ever, there's far more that needs to be done globally. But seeing last year, first China and then Japan and then South Korea commit themselves to net zero emissions by about mid-century. Not soon enough, I know, but still that's progress when all us big trading partners and strategic allies start showing that they're serious. You then had the UK and the EU greatly strengthen their commitments for 2030. You've got this continued leadership from a lot of small and vulnerable, but very powerful and determined countries, especially in our region here in the Pacific. And then we've had the US. Biden-Harris administration didn't really waste any time in, in getting down to work. I think it was the very first day they um, set in process joining the Paris Agreement. There was a whole nother run of executive orders a few days later. And as you picked up, I mean, it's really this comprehensive vision for all of society based on you know, harnessing the opportunities of the energy transition to create good, dignified, unionized jobs, he was saying. And we can absolutely do that in Australia. Sadly, we've had more than a decade, well more than a decade now of this you know, divisive politics and a lot of false arguments about, you know, we We've got to take care of the economy more than we have to take care of climate change. And we're worried about jobs. It's more important than climate change. But in fact, all of this is wrapped up together. And if we are, as we should be, you know, concerned about job security and decent work in uh, parts of the country that have been built around um, traditional industries, then the thing we have to do is recognise the fact the world is changing, do everything we can to support those communities in diversifying their prospects and tapping into other advantages that they have locally um, in retraining where necessary, you know, and providing generous redundancies where necessary if people are near the end of their working life. Basically making sure we're responding to climate change in a way that fits with the science, recognizes the transformation we have to go through, that leaves nobody behind, and then ensures we come out the other end as a, as a more equal, more just and, uh, and happier society. The very way to work against that, I think, is what sadly we still see in this country, which is the false promise of decades more prosperity built on coal and fossil fuel imports, fighting tooth and nail to prevent any kind of change. And all that's really doing is setting us up for a real crash. And the people who are going to lose most out of that is ironically, I think, the people that and you know, some detractors and climate denialists uh, uh, supposedly, you know, I think they're standing up for. So, yeah, I think the signals coming out of the US in particular in this regards, putting this through a friends of a frame of, you know, jobs and and rights and dignity is is really strong. And uh, when we've got growing domestic pressure for action in Australia, when we've got a lot of that leadership from the Pacific, but then when we've got the big economies, particularly the US, trying to push things in a better direction, that starts to become a bit of a perfect storm here in Australia that you have to think is going to force our government to do more eventually. The Deputy PM, Michael McCormack, has said that he isn't going to whack regional Australia with a 2050 climate goal and that he's not worried about what happens in 30 years' time. So for a party that concerns itself with farmers, is this the best reaction to climate policy on behalf of farmers? And what role do farmers play in climate policy? 
My goodness, it's a problem, isn't it, when we have a deputy prime minister saying he's not worried what happens in 30 years' time. Uh, It's baffling, to be honest. It's interesting how quickly that statement was followed by various farmers groups, I think the National Farmers Federation as well as others, coming straight out and saying, no, wait, hold on, we're on board with this. We, We do need a clear net zero target. And we have a role in this. And if we don't have a comprehensive scheme like that, not only are we not playing our role in tackling climate change, which we as farmers and graziers know is a huge threat to our future, but also we're not unlocking those opportunities in the land sector of learning new revenue through being part of the solution, through helping lock up more carbon in the landscape, through smart regenerative agriculture, through being able to sell our products without being whacked with a, you know, a carbon border levy, which is now seriously being talked about in the U.S., in EU and elsewhere. So it's a continuation of a very, a very frustrating argument we've been having in Australia. I think, um, again, one thing we can be a bit hopeful about there is just how strong and immediate the voice from many very smart and determined farming and grazing communities was in saying, no, wait a minute, let's all work together on this. What you're saying there is not in our interests. And all these ideas about climate policy seem so large and i think there's often the question of what can we as individuals do yeah so for those listening to this episode and thinking what can we do what can we do well there's really no limits here clearly you're right we need um big systemic changes to deal properly with climate change that can only be um ultimately implemented you know through firm national leadership but that said and while We don't want to shift the whole onus here to individual responsibility. There is so much that we can still do. And I think a lot of those hopeful signs we see at the moment do come from uh, individuals and communities taking matters into their own hands. In fact, we see this at almost every level other than national government at the moment. We see the states and territories showing a lot of leadership. That's not, I know, getting back to what individuals can do. We also see things like really great community-owned renewable energy schemes that are slowly transforming the way we produce energy. Uh, We see private investors starting to shift their money around. And then we see individuals working together to, uh, especially in bushfire-prone areas, to understand the risks they're facing and to build their resilience as a community in the face of climate change. And then, of course, we see individuals and families doing all the smart things to make choices that cumulatively change our country, whether that's choosing how they buy their energy, what their consumption patterns are like, and so on. All that matters. It's not enough because we need that leadership. But of course, the power that we ultimately have in the democracy, as, <laughs> as frantic and dysfunctional one it can seem sometimes, democracy tends to be, is of course we have, we have our vote. And um, that is ultimately you know, how we are going to collectively change the directory of things. So when you put all those things together, the choices that we make in our everyday lives, the way we use our vote, the way we use to use, choose to um, uh, invest our money. If we are those of us who have a, a mortgage or you know, superannuation accumulating, not all of us I know, but you know, just thinking about where that's being invested, like choosing your mortgage provider and your superannuation fund, things like that. When everyone does it, starts to move massive amounts of, of, of capital around. And perhaps whatever our circumstances are. We can all be talking about climate change to each other. We can all be sharing stories of how we see the world change or how, you know, what our friends in other parts of the world relate to us. There's an organization like Amnesty and a community of people who, you know, care deeply about the rights and the prospects and the security of people worldwide. There are so many stories from the front line of 
changes people are seeing, how they're showing leadership and adapting to them. And um, ultimately, this is a problem that we're all bound up in, problem that we're going to be working through for certainly the rest of our lives, where collectively, you know, we have the power through the choices we make and through everything we do to, you know, back in the leadership and voices of those on the front lines of the crisis, everything we do to um, hold our governments to account, there's really no limit to what we can do as individuals. This podcast is produced by Amnesty International Australia, hosted by Vince Boulding and Denise Miller. Edited by Max Lowe and researched by Alec Muir, Alex Kelly and Billy Fett.